Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. Good to see you. Welcome. Good to have you all here today. See some familiar faces, see some new faces, that's always good. Still got the splash zone, just in case. It's where all the Holy Spirit resides. That's fine. You guys will get it. Um, Today we're beginning a new series called uh, To the Holy and Faithful. Uh, To the Holy and Faithful. We're going to be going through Paul's letter to the Colossians, which is one of the smaller letters in the New Testament, but it's really dense and... um, Kind of as I was praying through, like, what's the next thing that the Lord would have for us? So the way, briefly, the way that we do vision here, uh, we don't kind of plan out the whole year. Um, our, our leadership comes together in October of each year. We pray, we ask the Lord for um, a word, an inclination, an image, whatever it might be. And we gather all that together and see what are the common threads uh, that he is speaking to our community and how might that be leading us uh, in, in the next year. And so um, for this year, we, we, we kind of came to this language of all our allegiance to King Jesus, that allegiance is the best way to define the word faith. Uh, that faith is not a passive trust, that we just kind of twiddle our thumbs until we die and hope that everything turns out, but it's actually every part of who we are being gathered up behind Jesus as our king. Because when we say Jesus Christ or we say the Messiah, these are words that mean king, so King Jesus. And um, the book of Colossians is a really wonderful uh, opportunity for us to continue to delve into that. So right up until Holy Week, we were going through um, the Sermon on the Mount as kind of this kingdom manifesto. That Jesus is saying, this is how you live into the kingdom, and through living into the kingdom, you understand the heart of the king. Um, and this series is going to be helping us to dive a little bit deeper into that. And this graphic, the wonderful Hunter Bustamante, of course, um, she, she is the best. Uh, and I love the way that she thinks into things. She takes what, it, like, Fuller? Fuller Monte. Well, anyway, she's great. And uh, I love when I like off, like I hand her all this jumble of language and I'm like, I think it's like this and maybe it's like that or whatever. And she comes up with something really beautiful. So uh, what I want to do today is I'm going to give a brief overview of this book. And then uh, we're going to actually read uh, in the first chapter, verses 1 to 14. I figured that was probably the best place to start this series. And then I'm just going to kind of unpack some of uh, what Paul is saying there and what it might mean for us, especially as we're laying the foundation for this series. I really love preaching scripture uh, verse to verse because... What happens there is we have to confront with whatever the writer is telling us. You know, it's very easy for us to say, here's what I want to hear. Let me go to the Bible, find the things that kind of justify what I want. But the beauty of doing a series like this is we, we enter in open-handed and we see what it is that God might have, for, uh, have in store for us there. And we have to contend with it and wrestle with it. So a little bit of, the, uh, of overview of the book of Colossians. Um, it was most likely written by Paul. 
There are some scholars who think at least maybe it was a disciple of Paul. It sounds a lot like him. It's not uncommon in the ancient world for somebody to write in the name of their teacher. But most people say, yes, this actually is a book that was written by Paul. And a lot of Colossians actually parallels a lot of his other writings. So you can almost think of like the book of Ephesians, for example, is like Colossians just kind of expanded. And it has the same general flow. It says a lot of the same things. But Colossians is just so beautifully dense that it really helps helps us to follow in Paul's line of thought. And we think that he wrote this probably around 62 AD, so it's a little bit later in his ministry. And this is possibly when he is imprisoned in Rome. So Paul has been kind of traveling through the, the Near East, um, preaching the gospel, um, you know, evangelizing the Gentile people, working with those in Jerusalem like Peter and James and others who are uh, kind of really focusing in on um, revealing to the Jewish people that the Messiah has already come. And Paul gets put in prison in Rome, and he begins to write these letters in that season uh, to all of his different churches that he's been ministering to over the past previous couple of decades. Now, where is Colossae? I want to show you on this map. Um, Colossae is in what was called Phrygia at the time, um, which is um, actually kind of Turkey. <laughs> We'll get the logo moved from there. So Phrygia, kind of like the middle bit of Turkey, and you can see Colossae kind of smack dab there in the middle. Um, Laodosia, some of you will be familiar with from the book of Revelation. Antioch, some of you will be familiar with. So it's kind of in the middle. So the culturally speaking, what we're dealing with here is a real convergence of cultures. You have the Roman Empire at large, so the influence of Greek and Roman culture is spread throughout this whole area. Everything you see here is part of the Roman Empire. It goes all the way out to Spain and then all the way across northern Africa. Um, in this area, in Turkey in particular, you have a lot of different Gentile cultures, especially the, um, the early Celtic people kind of started to start here and spread through all the way to France and then to the British Isles. Um, and then there's a, there's a decent Jewish population. So you can see if you kind of follow around the Mediterranean Sea, you come down, you see Jerusalem, Samaria, and so on. And so there was small pockets of Jewish culture in all of these, these uh, other cities. But by and large, uh, they're Gentile cultures um, inhabited by the Roman Empire, uh, worshiping different pagan gods. Each city kind of had their god or goddess that was their center of gravity for worship. And so what you find is this real mix of all of these different philosophies and religions and ways of being in the world. And you can imagine what happens when you try to bring all those people together under one banner. And I think that in and of itself really helps us to step into the book of Colossians because we recognize like this is a polyculture. This is a confusing place where not everybody believes the same thing, where not everybody comes from the same background. And Paul is trying to help them to find out what is it that actually binds us together. And the particular issues that they were having in this church of Colossae was that in the midst of all of these fervent pagan religions and cults that people are being rescued from, you have Jews and Gentile Christians kind of mingling together. And there, there, was, a, there was all of this different struggle of like, well, what's in and what's out and what's, what's kind of Orthodox Christianity and what isn't? What are the, and one, one of the things that they really found was that in their culture, um, in this little community, and we're talking tiny, like a church our size would blow the minds of the Colossians. So just keep that in mind as well. We're talking about like maybe 20, 30 people gathering together in a house every once in a while. Um, so it's very different from what we do. But this is a young church like ours. This is a church with a lot of different backgrounds and ethnicities and worldviews kind of converging, converging together just like ours. 
And what was happening here is that many of these early Christians were being sidetracked either by Jewish philosophy, um, this, the idea of like the synagogue structure of doing religion, or they're getting drawn in by all of this Hellenistic or Greek mysticism. Okay, so what we really find is these early Christians, now hear me, see if this sounds like it hits home at all, they, they knew the core of the gospel, but they felt like, oh, there's got to be something more, and they begin to explore what the surrounding culture has in store for them. Maybe there's something more interesting on the horizon. Maybe it's Jesus plus this, and that's what really helps me to grow into a fuller person. And so over time, these young, curious Christians trying to work out their faith are being drawn away from the centrality of Jesus Christ as the center of Christianity. And Paul is understanding this from some of his followers, from some of his disciples and fellow sojourners. And that's really what this series is going to be about. And this, this will pop up on the screen in a moment. This is kind of our core question. How do we keep King Jesus at the center of our allegiance when everything around us seeks to distract us? So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to read the beginning of this letter. I'm going to leave a moment for you just to sit in silence and see if the Lord wants to highlight something in particular to you about it, and then I'm going to uh, draw out a few lessons. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for this space. We thank you for this moment. We thank you for this season. Lord, I know already so much of this is going to resonate with where we're at, resonate with where we're at um, as a community seeking faithfulness, seeking allegiance to you, when sometimes we feel like we're being pushed and pulled by all of these competing philosophies and religions and ways of being in the world, and that some of those things are good and beautiful and should be blessed, and others of those are distracting us from keeping you at the center of our faith. So Lord, I pray as we continue on in this series, we enter in open-handed and willing to allow you to begin to identify within us what are some of those prevailing assumptions that we have that need to die, that we need to let go of? What are some of the things that are stirring deep within our souls that we actually need to magnify and amplify because they speak to the deepest truths of who you are? And God, I pray that over uh, the coming weeks and months, we only find ourselves deeper in love with you and more ready to give you our full and wholehearted allegiance. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this is Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, 
Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you might have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So I want you to just take a moment and just close your eyes. I know that was a lot. But is there anything there even now that the Lord is stirring up within you? Maybe it's a word or a phrase or an image that's coming to mind. I want you just to to meditate on that for a moment with me. So there's a lot happening here, even in the beginning of this letter. And a lot of times we tend to kind of skip the greetings at the beginning of the letters and we skip the ending of the letter because it seems like it's just a list of names. And that stuff isn't, it's not useful information. You know, a lot of us, we've learned the Bible is somehow supposed to be useful. Like we come to the Bible like I do for the the manual to my 2014 Volkswagen Jetta. Like that's how you do Bible. You've got a question, you come here, you turn to page 256. It tells you that you got to do this and this and this and that's tilt the flux capacitor and then tweak the thing and then you fixed it. And then we see all this stuff where like Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, whatever, these people don't, whatever. Give me the, what are the, what's the information? But when we do that, we really miss the sweep and the flow of what Paul's really doing here. And I think those elements of Paul's letters are so important because we receive the heart of a father, a spiritual father for his children, that we see how is it that he sees the, these people, this young church who are going through all this stuff. They're kind of, they're being stirred up. They're kind of questioning. There's a lot of tension within the household. And we want to know what is Paul's heart for these people in the beginning? And I think that that's what's so significant about even these first verses in Colossians 1 because he always begins, well, almost. Galatians is a little bit different. Paul is really frustrated with the Galatians, so that goes real quick. He's like, hey, greetings. So, this is what I hear. The rest of the letters, he's like, I love you guys. You're the best. Like, Colossians, 1 Corinthians, he's like, man, I just love you. You're the best. This is awesome. Okay, so here's the list of everything I hear is going wrong. Number one, let's not sleep with our moms, you know? Like, that's how a lot of Paul's letters write. Um, and so Colossians, he's beginning, he's saying, here's the thing that is truest about you. Here's the thing, before we go anywhere else, before I start calling out all of this stuff, he says to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace, and we thank God for you. And why does he do this? I think Paul does this for Colossae, and I think he does it for us, because we need to hear this. We need to be constantly reminded of who we really are because of who King Jesus truly is. Christianity is not a program for behavior modification. Christianity is not an ethical system. 
where you learn the rules and the ins and the outs and you learn how to be a good boy or you learn how to be a good girl. The gospel, the good news, is not advice on how you're supposed to live your life. It is a declaration that the world is different now because what God has accomplished through King Jesus. And then there is an invitation for you and I to get behind that. And so before we jump into all of the do's and the don'ts and the behaviors and and the actions and even the ethics and the morality, all these things that do matter, we have to begin with who we are before we talk about what we do. And so when Paul's writing to this early church and he says, to the holy and faithful brothers and sisters, what is he saying? He's saying, first of all, you are holy and faithful to Christ Jesus, to to Jesus as your king. You You have pledged allegiance to him. Everything you are is gathered up behind following him. And then secondly, you are faithful to one another the brothers and sisters in Christ. We have heard of your faith in Christ and the love that you have for all God's people. So our allegiance is to King Jesus, but our allegiance is also to the church. And if there's one thing that has has wounded me so much this past year is because of the distance that has been created through this pandemic, we turn people into concepts and ideologies, and then we paint very, very big portraits of the church the Western church, the evangelical church, the whatever church. And somehow we say, I must be exempt from that thing. Like, I'm in God's favor and they're not. But it's important to recognize that even at the beginning, Paul is saying, you are known for your faithfulness to King Jesus and your love for all of God's people. All of them. Not the ones you agree with. Not the ones you like, not the ones that you think are being faithful. In fact, all God's people means the ones that spit in his face every day. You are called to love them as well. We are to be known for our love of King Jesus, but also our love and dedication to the church. And it does not mean that we give a church, the church a pass for when she misses it. But it means we're invested because they are us. Okay? Hear me. If anyone claims allegiance to Jesus, they are now us. And that means there's a lot of work to do within the family, within the household. But the worst thing that we can do is allow these ideologies and these like principles and our kind of, you know, supposed purity to keep us separated from the people with whom we have been bound in Christ Jesus. I think one of the most tragic elements of biblical translation from Greek and Hebrew into English is that we only have one word for you. I like in in Spanish and French and so many other languages, they separate it out when we're speaking of an individual and when we're speaking of the multitude. I think we actually really need the southern translation of the Bible, where it's like nine out of times out of ten, it's y'all. Did I I get that right, Nicole? Y'all. There's almost like three syllables in there. When Paul's saying this... He's saying, when we pray for y'all, because we have heard of y'all's faith in Christ Jesus and of the love y'all have for God's people. Because salvation, first and foremost, is a collective salvation of the church. We together are being saved. And it doesn't mean that Paul doesn't have a place for your personal salvation. Your personal salvation only exists within the context of the church. There is no me and Jesus. There is no me in Jesus. It's us. I have been saved into this family. 
And within that, something's happening to me because it's happening to all of us. And so we need to be constantly reminded of who we really are because of who King Jesus really is. That what is being said of him is now being said of all of us because we are his family, we are his children, we are his body. And what is that core truth of who we really are? Not just what we do, but who we really are. We see this when when Jesus is baptized and he comes to his cousin John. He says, I need to be baptized. And he says, no, you need to baptize me. I don't need to baptize you. You don't have any sins to forgive. And he says, no, it's good and right to fulfill all scriptures. And so Jesus, um, he's baptized, John baptized, and he comes up out of the water. Um, the, The heavens part, a dove descends on him. And God says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved. And that proclamation over Jesus, if you are in Jesus, that is now true of you. I think this is what is so important and so profound about our faith, is that it really begins with these proclamations of who you really are. And out of that identity flows holiness and good works. You see, so many of us, we just want to rush to the bits about holiness. We just want to rush to the bits about good works Because in reality, many of us, we actually love legalism. We just want someone to tell us what to do. We want somebody to tell us how to behave. And before long, we get so obsessed by whether or not we're behaving correctly, then we start projecting that on others, whether or not they're behaving correctly, and that's why we see so much strife in the world. But the faith that we have in King Jesus is first to recognize that we are the beloved of God. And what I love about this being your true identity, because your identity is not in your sexuality or your gender, your identity is not your socioeconomic status, it's not in your race or ethnicity, it's not in your nationality, all of these things are temporary realities. It's not in your personality, it's not in your relationships, your identity is not in your actions, like how well you do at work. None of these things are your identity. Your identity is not something that you can earn. It is only a gift you can receive. And it is to recognize that you are the beloved of God. Let's get Pentecostal real quick. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are the beloved. Turn to the other neighbor and say, you are the beloved. It's real. Until we are able to grasp our belovedness as the core of our identity, we cannot bless all those other things about who we are. We cannot bless all those things about what we do. Holiness becomes rags. All of these little categories of, of who human beings are become liabilities. They become threats. They keep us divided, but when we recognize the core truth of us is our own belovedness, this gift that we receive, that is God's love for all of us, for God shows no favoritism, it changes the game. Many of you know, I've had a really terrible week. My spiritual father last week, as many of you know, he passed unexpectedly. I'm literally, I'm going to finish preaching, and I'm getting in my car, and I'm driving up to Jacksonville for his funeral, and I want to speak more about it perhaps next week as I've processed but one of the things that I knew that I needed to do this week was to recenter myself on this reality of belovedness because it's been a very hard year to be a pastor. It's been very unsatisfying. It's been really difficult to try to do church in this era, in this season, and it's so easy for me to attach my identity to performance, 
How many people are here? How well am I preaching? How many people am I meeting up with? Well, that person chose out, and this person said they don't want to come anymore. And it's so easy for me to get, like, to attach my identity to all of those things. And so I began to reread this beautiful little book called Life of the Beloved by Henry Nouwen. And I was so captured in the early part of this book where where Henry is writing it as if he's writing to a friend who is not of the faith, trying to express these deepest truths of the Christian faith. And this is what he writes to his friend. He says, my only desire is to make these words reverberate in every corner of your being. You are the beloved. The greatest gift my friendship can give to you is the gift of your belovedness. I can give that gift only insofar as I have claimed it for myself. Think about that. I can give that gift only insofar as I have claimed it for myself. Isn't that what friendship is all about? Giving to each other the gift of our belovedness. And now one goes on to say, you know, we live according to the praise and blame of other people. That we crave that affirmation, that attention from other people, especially those close to us, the people with, with whom we do share a common love. And we live or die according to their praise of us or their blame of us. But to kind of scrape all of that off the surface of our identity because it's up and down and it's fleeting and it's temporary. And then to choose into this deeper, constant, eternal reality that is the love of God for us. And to, 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 you know, to, to stake our tent in that. To root ourselves to that constant loving presence of God to us changes everything. And then what we realize, what I am continually realizing then, is that part of the purpose of this, the church, the body, is that we are here specifically to remind each other of who we really are. And how many of you, you walk through these doors in the morning, and you're dragging with you this huge duffel bag full of the praise and blame of the week? your triumphs and your tragedies, your victories and your failures, the thing that your mother said to you on this day or the thing that your coworker said to you on that day or that you didn't quite get that thing as far and, and you're carrying all this shame and this guilt because you didn't meet the, all, all these expectations that you placed upon yourself and you're supposed to come in here and through the loving presence of God in his people to go, none of that is who you really are. That's not your true identity. And I think that's why it's so profound to me that Paul begins this letter by saying, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Why do we pray for you? Because for Paul, Christianity is not a set of tenets of the faith. Here's all the doctrines and here's all the things that you need to believe and check the boxes and now you're a Christian. It was completely relational. It's about the, the constant presence of God, like how do I enter into the presence of God on a more consistent basis, but how do I enter into the consistent presence of my brothers and sisters in Christ? And that's what we call prayer. Prayer is loving, consistent presence. And one of the things I've been so convicted of recently is how often am I praying for you? How often are you close to my heart? How often are you on my mind? that I'm praying for you, that I'm thanking God for you, that I'm advocating for you, because those are the kinds of things that stir up affections. And if I'm not praying for you, 
I'm just objectifying you. I'm turning you into ideas and concepts and numbers and all of that stuff. I begin to judge my own value by how well you're receiving this thing or whether or not you're here or whatever it might be. But prayer dramatically shifts the way in which I cherish your presence to me of who you really are. And it invites in me a challenge to say, hey, I need you to remind me of who I really am. I need you to speak truth into my life when I forget it, when I have the bad days. How much are you praying for this body? How much are you advocating for your brothers and sisters that are also a gift to you? Can you believe in some strange way you didn't choose these people, but God did? And to steward well the body is to be constantly praying, thanking God for whom he has given us, even those with whom we do not agree. And then secondly, advocating for one another as we continue on the road together. And this is where Paul continues on in verses 4 and 5 that he says, We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. And so for Paul, these kind of core virtues begin to emerge out of this reality of embracing our belovedness, faith, hope, and love. For Paul and for the, for the early Christians, these were kind of the, what we call the theological virtues. They're kind of the pillar virtues of our faith. We hold these three up um, as like the highest calling that we have as the people of God. These are the markings of being in Christ. Faith being our allegiance to Christ and our allegiance to one another. Hope believing that the last word is not the last word after all, but God still has something in store for us. And love, this steadfast withness that we have because the Spirit compels us to say, I cannot help but be with you in this. And so out of our true selves, found in King Jesus, we are formed to be virtuous people. That's what the Christian life is about. That when we are found in King Jesus, when we are rescued by him, from wherever we were into this family. And as the Spirit works within us, we are formed to be virtuous people. There we go. And so virtue is very different from behavior management. And a lot of what we're going to be doing in this series is specifically talking about virtue and how we are formed, that we are, we are growing. It's this kind of commingling. It's this, this dance that we have with the Holy Spirit as we become more than we were when we first met him. And so we find in like verse 10, for example, this is kind of Paul's thesis in a way. And he's setting the tone for where we're going when we understand our belovedness. He says, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. This is, this is what Paul's telling us. This is where I'm about to tell, take you. When you understand who you are, when you allow that reality to form you from the inside out, it is going to transform the way you are in the world. And you're going to begin to live a life worthy of the Lord. You're going to bear good fruit that your actions matter. 
your actions begin to change because you see the world dramatically different. You choose to be in the world in a dramatically different way, and it begins to rewire everything within you to be more and more kingdom people. But the important thing is that we understand the connection between our identity as the beloved of God and our actions, our purpose. Because we don't want to fall into cheap grace on one hand, right? Which is, it's fine, I can do whatever I want, I have freedom in Christ. That's cheap grace. That that my belovedness costs me nothing in the sense that I don't have to own it or steward it well, or it doesn't really matter what I do, I'm already loved by God. That's kind of cheap grace on the other side, one side. And then legalism is on the other, where it's like, I have to behave a certain way in order to receive that love. You see, that's the reality of how way, the way in which many of us have lived in the world. This is constantly what we've received from family and friends and society is either you don't have to change anything in order to be accepted, which is half true, or you have to change in order to be accepted. You see? And the, the reality of true, true godly love is somewhere in the middle. You are 100% accepted as you are as the beloved. And because of that acceptance, to truly accept that acceptance means that you will change. That you will become more than what you were. If we don't see growth in our lives, it's usually because we haven't accepted our own belovedness. Okay? If you don't see change in your life, it's not because you're not running the program well. It's because you probably need to spend a little bit more time inhabiting and embracing and cultivating your own belovedness before God. Because of my pay raise this year, I get to bring on a new, uh, a new charity to support. And I've been looking around for that, <clears throat> trying to find what's a, what's a new way that I can kind of sow into kingdom work. And I actually read this article on MAC News about this, uh, this group called the Talitha Kum. And there's these nuns, and they're my new heroes, Okay. So there are 60,000 of these nuns in 92 countries around the world. And basically what they do is they chase down uh, pimps. That's what they do. So the International Labor Organization um, estimates that there's roughly 25 million people that are in forced labor across the globe. That could be child slavery, sex slavery, um, you know, indentured servanthood where someone's trying to work off their debts, whatever it might be. And there's probably about 5 million of them facing forced sexual exploitation. So this is where especially uh, women and young girls are groomed and then they're brought in where they have to sell their bodies for someone else in order to survive. And one of the particular stories in this article about the Talitha Kum, this is Sister Lorenka Marquesis, and she lives in Goa, India. And I just want to read you a little bit of the article about her. It says, Sister Lorenka Marquesis walking along a dirt path in the coastal state of Goa, a popular tourist destination in western India. Several years ago, the area was home to a booming sex trade. The warren of concrete huts overlooking the beach were used as brothels, and the men and women who ran them operated with impunity. Marquez said that she often visited the area seeking to rescue young girls, an effort fraught with risk. We were assaulted by a man over there, she said, pointing in the direction of a mud-colored house. The man wrapped his hands around Marquez's neck, she said, and threw her to the ground. We were the enemies of what was happening here, she said. And yet, Marquez said the assault didn't deter her or her fellow sisters. Now listen. This is her. This is her saying this. 
How can I get frightened, she said. We come here for a specific purpose, to work for these people. How can I get frightened? Marquez then walked up to one of the little shacks where the very man she said assaulted her was standing at a sink washing his hands. They greeted each other warmly. Marquez asked how he was doing and whether or not she would see him in church on Sunday. The man smiled and nodded his head. I love you as if you're my brother, Marquez told him. What are we doing? Are you kidding me? Here we are in the Western church, the evangelical church, and we're having all these arguments about, like, God knows what, about why we won't associate with those people over there. And there's little old ladies all over the world chasing down pimps, rescuing little girls off the street, rehabilitating them, getting laws changed in countries to outlaw the sex trade. What in the actual hell are we doing? My God, these are my new heroes. At the end of the article, I had interviewed another lady who was in a different part of India, Sister Rose Pate in Gwadi, India. She's 57 and she's a breast cancer survivor and she's doing this kind of work for nearly a decade. And they were interviewing about her and she began to downplay the role that she plays in protecting children. She said, I'm a simple nun, a small one. I can do very little, not even a drop in the ocean. I just wonder when I, when I read these stories and I, like, I'm just like, take my money, go, do this thing because you're doing it in a way that I don't fathom because I'm so self-absorbed and I'm so self-righteous and I'm so convinced that I've got it right all the time that it actually arrests me from doing anything material with the world because number one, I don't accept my own belovedness because I listen to all the other voices in my head. And because I don't embrace my own belovedness, I don't actually question the material way in which I live my life. And I just wonder if these women have been so formed by understanding their belovedness, they've been so shaped by Jesus, that they can stand there in the presence of these violent people in the world and go, how can I be frightened? How can I be frightened? There is work to do. And so we know the Spirit of God is working in us when we step out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of light. This is how Paul ends this passage. Speaking about how Jesus has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. And the dominion of darkness was those kind of empirical notions of power in Rome. It was pagan worship and everything that came from that. It was even temple systems of systematic religion that we have been rescued out of the dominion of darkness and we've been embraced in the kingdom of light. And we know that the spirit of God is at work within us when we begin to see that changing within us. When all of a sudden we start seeing other people differently, when all of a sudden we begin behaving differently, when, when our passions change, when our desires change, all of these things, and we're like, what is happening to me? And it's like, oh, that's the spirit of Jesus at work in me. You see, Paul's central understanding of salvation and the cross was this idea of triumph over evil, that Jesus came to triumph over evil, the unholy trinity, the flesh, the enemy, and the world. And he conquered them through his powerlessness on the cross. He was raised on the third day to God prove this is who he said he was because evil did its worst and it still couldn't keep him down. 
And in that, Jesus is inaugurating a new world that is bursting forth in the midst of the old one. So it's rescue from the the dominion of darkness, but it's also this citizenship that we have in heaven, this new allegiance that we have to King Jesus. And he tells us the markings of what it looks like for us to step into the kingdom of light. Number one, the love in the spirit that we have for one another. That within the people of God, we see demonstrated kindness, gentleness, forgiveness, and unity. And again, I wonder, I think one of the challenges of this pandemic is it's kept us apart. It moved us online. And before long, the people that we were constantly rubbing shoulders with and and cultivating affection with just became obstacles to overcome in a digital space. Because guess what? All of like the, how many, we've had the internet for what, 30 years? Like, that cannot change thousands of years of being a human being where people are, are, are fellow creatures that are in front of you that you can touch, that you can smell, that you can embrace. So when we engage with people online, they're not really people to us. And I think one of the tra- most tragic things of this year, specifically for the church, is because it has kept us apart, it has dehumanized the other people in the church. It is dehumanized. We've turned them into concepts to overcome and to argue. And before long, we grasp at our ideologies. We grasp at our tribal notions that fall short of understanding that we are the beloved children of God. And we begin to cast that out on these other people. And they're wrong because they didn't do this. And they didn't say that thing in the right way. And da da da. And we start to do this thing where we find ourselves increasingly, our world is getting smaller and smaller and smaller because we will not associate with anyone with whom we do not agree, which is anti-kingdom. It's anti-kingdom. What is another indicator that Paul gives us? That you will increase in knowledge and wisdom of God. That is to say, intimacy with God. You will know what God is like. You know the Spirit is moving within you when you just fall for God. I'll tell you more next week, but one of the things that broke me this week, thinking about Dan's sudden passing, and and, and it was unexpected, and none of us knew that this was coming, I had this moment where I was like, I have never, ever met someone in my entire life who is so hungry to see Jesus face to face, ever. And I know some amazing Christians. He was so, so hungry to see Jesus face to face, and he got it. Are you kidding me? Do I have that kind of hunger? Am I so taken when I see the face of Jesus that I go, I don't want anything else. Everything else is secondary. I want him. That's what I want. But that has to be something that we cultivate within us, the spirit of God, this knowledge and wisdom of God that we receive, this intimacy with him to know what God is truly like. And then thirdly, we see this flow into holiness and good works, our purpose, are we actually doing something with our precious lives, with the gifts that God has given us, with the relationships he's given us? Are we actually doing something? But all of these indicators that we are increasingly finding ourselves in the kingdom of light, they have to be cultivated. It has to be a co-laboring with the spirit of Jesus and with one another that we continue to, to spur one another on in this journey. Because the Christian community is not simply one of ideologies and doctrines and lines in the sand of who's in and who's out and who's in God's favor and who's not. 
It's a community of togetherness, of allegiance to King Jesus and to one another. In the same way that Paul soaks his communities in prayer, so we need to be doing the same. So I want to invite you to stand with me. And I've written a prayer for us. One of my favorite things to do with scriptures is, is to turn scriptures into a prayer. That's what they're there for, is that we take what we're reading and we allow it to wash over us, over our minds and our hearts and our souls. And then we turn it back outwards into a prayer that what we see in the scriptures becomes part of us and we ask the Lord to enter into that space. And so what I've done is taken the, this last portion of Colossians and I've turned it into a liturgical prayer that there's gonna be, I'm gonna pray something, you'll see it on the screen, and then I'm gonna create space for you to practice praying that out. And this is part of the action element of what we're talking about in this series. So let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the community you have gifted us in City Beautiful Church. You have saved us into a family, and it is through one another that we can be reminded we are your beloved. May faith, hope, and love be evident wherever we gather. So just take a moment and thank God for this community as it is today. of your will. Grant us all the wisdom and understanding you can give. Now out of that platform of thankfulness for the church as it is today, I want you to intercede for our growth. Where is it that the Lord wants to take us next? Let's intercede. how to bear fruit in every good work as an outflow of our intimate knowledge of you. So I want you to ask the Lord to inspire you to greater action that you would do more for the kingdom of light.
Father, we joyfully give you thanks for qualifying us as your sons and daughters to share in this inheritance in the kingdom of light. Thank you for rescuing us from the dominion of darkness. Lord Jesus, thank you for our redemption and the constant forgiveness of our sins. Just take a moment and thank God for the gift of your true identity as his beloved. Father, I'm excited to see what you have in store for us in this next season. Lord, may, may we be uh, never so close-fisted in our expectations that we don't enter into this place with a sense of surprise and delight and wonder at what it is that you want to show us. God, I pray that you would give each one of us a confidence to stay the path, that you give us an open-heartedness, um, an affection for one another to link arms together on the journey to support one another to challenge each other to equip each other that we might stay faithful to you and god i pray that as we continue on this journey that in knowing you our hunger for you only increases i pray this in the strong name of your son our savior jesus christ amen This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.